Hey, if you have your Bibles today, we're in Matthew chapter 24. Um, every Sunday at our church, if you're brand new, my name's Christian. I'm one of the pastors. We're going to open the Bible. We're going to teach the Bible. If you have a smartphone, you might download the Bible app. It's free. It's very easy to follow along um, on. And if you don't have a Bible, you don't have a smartphone, everything I read from the Bible is going to be on the screens behind us. So it should be really easy to follow along and learn and listen today. We're in week three of a series called Kingdom Come. We are listening to Jesus answer questions about the end times. Say, what is the end times? He's talking about the end of this physical world and how we know when it is getting close and the beginning of the eternal kingdom begins. The first week of the series, Pastor Christian Gracia taught us that the reason the last day is important is because when we understand the last day, it changes the way we live today. Let me say it again. The reason the last day, the reason end times things are important is because for Christians, when you understand the last day, you'll change the way you live today so that you can press into Jesus. That's really the goal of this series, but we're talking about some difficult things. We're in Matthew chapter 24, which is a chapter of questions and answers. Matthew 24 starts with the disciples asking Jesus three questions, and here are the questions. As they leave Jerusalem in Matthew 24, the disciples ask Jesus, when's the temple going to be torn down? Because they left the temple and the disciples were like, man, that's an impressive building. And Jesus is like, it's going to be torn down. They're like, when's that going to happen? Jesus doesn't answer the question in the text we're studying, Matthew 24. But he does say in Luke chapter 21 that when the armies of Rome surround Jerusalem, you know that's getting ready to happen. That would happen in AD 70. They then ask him, what's going to be the signs of your coming kingdom? Like, how are we going to know that this physical world is ending and like your eternal kingdom has begun? We'll start answering that next week on Father's Day in verses 29 through 44. Last week and today, we're going to be answering the last question. What will be the signs of the end? How will we know when it's getting really close to the end and we're getting ready to transition to the next kingdom? Jesus is going to answer that question in Matthew 24 with six signs of the times. Last week, we gave the first three. Sign number one is there'll be deception and distraction um, in the church world, in the geopolitical world, um, in the natural disasters that cause unnatural pain. Like it will just look like and feel like the world is falling apart from the institutions to the nations to like the globe. It'll just look like things are falling apart. Jesus said there'll be an unnatural amount of persecution against people of faith and paganism. There'll be heresies within movements of faith and there'll be pain for people of faith from people who leave the faith. We talked a little bit about that last week. Um, And then Jesus said, one of the things that'll be really good is sign number three, the church, Christians will be really faithful and the church will still be on mission um, as we get near the end. So last week we had some bad news that really ended with good news because it was like, um, there's gonna be deception, there's gonna be distraction, there's gonna be persecution, pain, um, there's gonna be paganism, yet in verse 14, like Christians are gonna be living on mission. So I was like, hey, maybe it's gonna be good. It ended with good news. Today we kind of flip back into not just bad news, but the worst news. Today we're gonna read verses 15 through 28, but here's what you need to understand chronologically. Jesus is talking more in a micro sense about what he's already explained in verses 5 through 12. So from a chronological perspective, Jesus has already taught us everything about the end times and the first three signs. But in signs 4, 5, and 6, he's going to go back up into the text and say, this will be kind of what these things will look like. So we're going to start in verse 15 today. Um, Have you ever read a passage of scripture out of the Psalms that like after you read it, you just feel like God has like watered your soul, like it was just a breath of fresh air? Have you ever read a Psalm like that? Today's scripture's not like that. Just heads up. (laughs) 
You do not feel good when you get done reading. It's like, whoa. Um, Verse 15 says this. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then those who who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, the vultures will gather. Whoa. Not a fun text, but an important text. Because it's an answer to an important question. Three questions walking out of the temple in Jerusalem that day. When's the temple going to be torn down? Uh, what's going to be the sign of your coming kingdom? What are the signs of the end? Jesus says this deception and distraction are going to be rampant in everything in life. Persecution and paganism and pain within church movements in your faith community. The church will still be on mission. However, sign four, five, and six, we learn that things are going to be difficult. Here's how I want to frame signs four, five, and six today. Uh, I want to teach you the lens of end times prophecy through what you should know and what you should do. I'm going to try to keep it very simple. Unfortunately, many times people study prophecy for what they can know, not for what they should do. But we learn that every word of scripture is given to help us in our faith walk and given for us to help others in their faith walk. So we want to talk today about what are the signs What should we know about the signs, and what should that cause us to do as followers of Jesus right now, real time? Because we understand the last day, it changes how we live today. So what are the last three signs that Jesus gives us? Sign number four is what I call the great tribulation. That's kind of the theological word for it as you study eschatology or end times theology. You might on your notes write greatest tribulation or even worst tribulation. Because Jesus says in John 16, 13, every Christian in every generation is going to go through tribulation. The word in English is actually trouble, almost the exact same word in the Greek. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So if you are a Christian living in any generation, the generation of Jesus, generation like ours, 2,000 years after Jesus, or generation 4,000, like if you're a Christian, you're going to live through tribulation, but Jesus has overcome the world. The end times tribulation is different. He says who? says Jesus. Look at verse 21. Every Christian lives through tribulation, but this is different. He says in verse 21, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. What do we need to know about this greatest, worst tribulation? Let's go to verse 15, and let's kind of unpack four things. There's four what I call need to know phrases in verse 15. Jesus says, when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, written of by the prophet Daniel, 
then let the reader understand. What do we need to know? Some really clear things. Let's just unpack this as kind of like a a map that we're trying to figure out with some symbols. The word holy place represents Jerusalem, but probably more specifically, the presence in the place of God. Uh, Almost all scholars would say that the holy place is um, representing the holy of holies, which was in the Jewish temple, but you and I know there is no Jewish temple standing right now. So if this is in times, it's either got to be a new Jewish temple or it's got to be talking about the place and presence of God. But when you see standing in the holy place, the place that represents God, the abomination that causes desolation, this is a spiritual defilement that causes destruction and desertion of how and where people worship God. Jesus says, when you see the place where people are supposed to draw near to worship God, destroyed so people cannot worship God and will not worship God there. He said, like the one spoken of in the prophets. Now, he used the phrase specifically the prophet Daniel, but there's several prophets who spoke about this end times theology. Jesus is reminding his 12 little Jewish disciples um, that he's just telling them something that they should already know because it's already been taught in scripture. Not new information. He's saying the Old Testament prophets already told you about the end. You should have some awareness of the end. The end should not be a surprise. It's not a secret. God's been trying to get you ready, and he wants you to be ready for the end. So Jesus is like, I'm not processing new information. And he says, let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. Basically, we learn that followers of Jesus should learn the lessons of prophecy. Let me say what I've already said and what's been written on the screen so that you hear it correctly. It didn't say that Jesus' followers should know the timeline of prophecy. It says Jesus' followers should know the lessons of prophecy. I think sometimes we get so caught up on the timeline that if we think it's not near, it's not important, so I don't worry about it. When the key point of prophecy, like we talked about last week, is to prepare the condition of your heart and the call of your hands to finish well. I told you about a friend of mine last week who really got caught up in prophecy and a few years ago uh, after a heart attack and I think quadruple bypass surgery, he said God whispers in his ear that your end is gonna come before the end so quit being so caught up on the end and like get living for me. He said I was a prophecy junkie and then I became like a Jesus junkie. Your end's probably gonna come before the end so like, like lean in spiritually. So as we learn the lessons of prophecy, we can't just look forward, we gotta look backwards. And here's the first thing we're gonna learn really as we learn the lessons of prophecy. We're gonna learn from scripture that the enemy of God has always been the enemy of God's people. Say, why is there great, greatest, worst? Why is there really, really bad tribulation? Because the enemy of God has always been the enemy of God's people. Like this is not change, this is not new, this should not be surprising. For those of you who actually got a bulletin today with notes in it, I've put a chart in there for you. If you're following along on your app notes, that chart will be there. It was difficult to display on the screen, so I'll walk through it. But if you've got paper, probably easy, a little easier to follow along. The the enemy of God has always been the enemy of God's people. It's why Satan in the Garden of Eden Eden ruined God's perfection with Adam and Eve. Because the enemy of God has always been the enemy of God's people. It's why Cain killed his righteous brother Abel. Because the enemy of God has always been the enemy of God's people. It's why Pharaoh demanded that all the baby boys in Egypt be killed lest a Hebrew deliverer, rescuer be raised up for the people of Israel because the enemy of God has always been the enemy of God's people. 
It's why a giant named Goliath came after God's anointed king named David. Because Satan has always had people coming against, as an enemy, God's people. The enemy of God's always been the enemy of God's people. It's why the wicked king Ahab wanted to kill the righteous prophet Elijah, because the enemy of God has always been the enemy of God's people. It's why the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered and exiled in 722 BC by the kingdom of Assyria, and why 150 years later the southern kingdom of Judah was exiled and conquered in 586 BC by the Babylonians to uh, Assyria, modern day Turkey, uh, Babylon, modern day Iraq, and uh, Iran, where the people of God were kind of scattered. Why? Because the enemy of God has always been the enemy of God's people. It's why king, the king of Syria, Antiochus IV, also known as uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, came against and tried to destroy not only the area of Palestine that he ruled over, but all of Jewish worship by defiling the Jewish temple in 175 to 165 BC. It's why King Herod of Israel said that all the baby boys in Bethlehem should need to be killed because he'd heard one of them might be God's savior. See, the enemy of God has always been the enemy of God's people. It's why Rome in AD 70 came and didn't just destroy Jerusalem but knocked down the temple in Jerusalem because the enemy of God is always the enemy of God's people. It's why Hitler in Nazi Germany tried to extinguish the Jewish race because the enemy of God has always been the enemy of God's people. It's why in 2022, more Christians were killed for their faith on planet Earth than in any other year in history. Just because we don't feel it in America doesn't mean it's not happening. More Christians die every year for being a Christian, every year now moving forward than ever before. Persecution against the Christian church is at an all-time high because the enemy of God has always been the enemy of God's people. And as we get into end times theology, we see the rescuer, of Israel turns on the Jewish people and very specifically Jewish Christians with a desire to totally annihilate them because the enemy of God has always been the enemy of God's people. Now in that chart, three of those, and I could have mentioned hundreds, I just kind of gave the highlights of the Bible, three of those have some asterisks by them because all three of those really do apply to the phrase, the abomination that causes desolation. This is a phrase used three times in the book of Daniel's prophecy to describe events that preceded the coming Messiah. We know of three specifically in history. Two of them are past tense. One will come at the very end. You say, what are those? The first of the asterisks in your chart. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, the king of Syria. When Alexander the Great died, his Greek empire was divided into four kingdoms. And one of the kingdoms, the king who lived in Syria, decided that because he hated the Jewish people, he was going to defile really not the Jewish people, but Judaism. So he took a pig into the Holy of Holies and he made the Jewish priests sacrifice it and eat it in the Holy of Holies. For those of you who are aware of kosher meals and laws at all, pork was not something that the Jewish people were allowed to eat, much less sacrifice in the holy of holies of the temple, and the priest eat that pig on the temple mount. It was a defilement that caused the Jews to say, we can't worship here anymore. 
It actually caused an uprising in history called the Maccabean Revolt. A priestly family led by Judas Maccabeus went and drove the Syrian government out. And when they tried to cleanse the temple and prepare it for worship again, they only had enough oil to light the menorah for one night. But that menorah was lit for 10 nights. It's why they now celebrate Hanukkah, the 10 nights of Hanukkah or the festival of lights as they celebrated in scripture because they believe a miraculous move of God came after their place had been defiled forcing them to almost desert it. In AD 70, the Roman general Titus came in, and he didn't just tear down the city of Jerusalem, he tore down the temple on top of the Temple Mount, literally bulldozed it over the side of what is now the Western Wall, and it was gone. An abomination that caused desolation. The first one defiled the place. The second destroyed the place. It was just gone. So there's no ability to worship the way they used to worship. You say, those are pretty bad. There's still one to come that will be worse. Yes, according to scripture, the prophecy of Daniel and Revelation and Jesus here in Matthew, there's still one more abomination that causes desolation to come. You say, what will that one look like? It'll look like all the rest. Satan has always used powerful nations and powerful people to persecute the people of God. And this will be how the third desolation, that, uh, desolation comes. You say, what will that look like? Well, in Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 through 39, God says, I'll use a foreign power. In Daniel 12, 1, God says, I'll use a foreign power. Uh, in Isaiah 10, 12, we see that Satan uses enemies of God to come against the people of God. In Jeremiah 30, I think verses six and seven, we see the enemies of the people of God coming against them. In Zechariah 13, eight and nine, we see the enemies of God coming against them. But very specifically in Ezekiel chapter 38, we see a list of nations that are going to come against the people of God to destroy the people of God. And Ezekiel 38 is gonna tell us this, when the nations of the north and the south and the east form a coalition against Israel, a rescuer, from the west somewhere. We don't know. We can look at geography and start naming names, but we don't know. A rescuer from the west is going to step in to rescue Israel for three and a half years before then turning on the Jews and Jewish Christians for three and a half years of great, greatest, worst tribulation. Now, what's interesting is to look at the geopolitical scenario of today and say, maybe we're close to the end. Because in Ezekiel 38, we see the seven nations who are going to come against Israel to cause them to need help listed. And here are those nations, if we take the names of 2,500 years ago, we transliterate them to the nations that they are today. The nations of Ezekiel 38 are Russia, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Sudan, and Libya. You look at those and you say, I think all of those hate Israel today, don't they? I think they do. You say, could you ever see them forming a coalition to come against Israel? Yeah, I could. And the Bible says when those seven specifically begin to point their weapons toward Israel, and Israel's unable to defend themselves, that a rescuer will arise from the West. Now, Tim LaHaye, who's written a lot of prophecy books, the Left Behind series on prophecy, thinks that it's, it's going to be someone from ancient Rome, possibly Italy, to uh, Israel's West who will step in. Maybe the Roman Catholic Church will step in. Um, a lot of people think it's the United Nations founded in Western Europe and by the United States. Some people think it's America. They think because of the way that America shaped that an American president could step in and be a rescuer of Israel and the next American president could step in and become the president of Israel. 
For those of you who have traveled to Israel, you know a lot of times they view America through the lens of the president that is currently ruling over Israel. I was in Israel several years ago, a couple presidents back when uh, I was leaving Israel, and we had a president at the time who was the first president in a long time not to visit the nation of Israel or to host the prime minister of Israel at the White House. And when I left, the guy who stamped my passport looked at my passport, stamped it, gave it back to me, and said, come back when you have a new president. So like they're aware, they're aware who's in the West and how the West feels about Israel. And what we learn is that someone will step in and not just rescue the Jewish state, but when we look through the prophecy of Daniel Revelation, we see that the person who rescues the Jewish state will be so pro-Israel that they will actually rebuild the temple of Israel where the Dome of the Rock currently is, and they will reinstitute the daily sacrifice, and it will look in Israel now like it looked in Israel in the time of Jesus or in the Old Testament. It will look like the Messiah, the Christ, who then becomes the Antichrist has shown up. Because three and a half years into that movement, he will enter that Jewish temple where sacrifices are being made and he will declare himself God. And he will say, whoever does not follow me will now be either starved to death or will be killed. He'll put a mark on all the people who say they will follow him that we call in scripture the mark of the beast. And everyone who does not receive that mark will not be able to buy or sell, probably not be able to get educated, probably not be able to buy food. They'll be slowly starved or quickly killed. Like this is what's called the greatest tribulation. This is the abomination that causes desolation. Jesus says, when you see that, man, it's really, really close. You say, great information. What do I do with that? That is the right question. Knowing that information, what do we do with that? Good question. Let's try to answer that. What do I need to do? Four things. Jesus will say, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to do. Letter A, you need to be aware that powerful people and groups and causes are going to offer you rescue apart from Jesus. Jesus said when this begins to happen, a lot of false messiahs, a lot of saviors are going to stand up and say, I can take care of you. Don't believe them. Nobody can take care of you like Jesus. Be aware. Letter B, be aware of the target on God's people because when it turns, it's going to turn fast. And God's people will be targeted to the point where they will have to flee. They will not be safe where they are. In spiritual communities, they will flee together because there will be a target on their backs. Letter C, he said, in this season, make sure you hold Jesus as your dearest possession. He'll say in verses 16 through 18, if you're on the top of your house and you got to go, don't go get any other possessions in your house. Just run towards Jesus. If you forgot your code in the field, don't worry about going to get your code in the field. Just run towards Jesus. Like, as you move towards the end, hold Jesus as your dearest priority possession. Other things are not going to matter as much. Run towards Jesus and letter D, pray for those unable to escape the persecution. The metaphors he used are, man, I feel bad for pregnant and nursing mothers. They're not going to make it out. I feel bad for people if it's winter time. They're not going to make it out. I feel bad for people who try to flee on the Sabbath. There's going to be some who do not make it out of the persecution. So as followers of Jesus, we pray for people who are enduring persecution right now. The last reflection question as we end this message will be pray for Christians in persecuted countries who right now on their Sunday are having church services but someplace very, very private because if somebody knows, they'll pay dearly for it. So it's not just a what to know, it's what I, like, what do I do? What I do is I run to Jesus. What I do is I make Jesus my priority. What I do is I realize the world is gonna turn against Christian because the enemy of God has always been the enemy of God's people and I'm one of God's people, which means I have an enemy. So I have to be aware. Sign number four, the greatest, worst, 
Really bad tribulation. Sign number five, counterfeit messiahs. Jesus says, beware, verses 23 through 26, of counterfeit messiahs. He says, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. What do I need to know? I think this is the most practical, applicable, and impactful part of this message for this time. So please listen closely. Like if there's anything you can take for this one for this week, here it is. What do I need to know? Satan will again send a spirit into the world that promises all the blessing of God without any submission to God's authority. But please see the word again. Because the first perfect man was given this temptation and he fell to it. First perfect man was named Adam. Adam was told by God's enemy, you can have everything God wants you to have. You don't have to do it God's way. And Adam said, great. He took the bait and he died. The second perfect man was a man named Jesus. He withstood the temptation, but it was the exact same temptation. Satan shows up on the scene, the enemy of God's people, and he says, listen, I'll give you everything God has called you to do, but you don't have to do it God's way. You can do it my way. Jesus said, no, it doesn't work that way. He withstood the temptation, but he died anyway. So why did he die if he withstood the temptation? Sacrificially and willingly, he died for people who were broken by sin so that they could be made perfect in him, made perfect in Jesus, which is the third group, that's us. The first perfect man fell, the second perfect man withstood the temptation, but those perfected in Christ must be aware of the temptation. What's the temptation? To believe you can have all the promises and blessings of God without any of the authority of God. It has been since the first conversation of creation, the target of the enemy for the people of God. You can have everything God wants you to have. You don't have to let God be in charge of your life, though. And please notice that Jesus says the people targeted by this message are not non-Christians, they're Christians. The reason anyone would call someone the antichrist or a false messiah is because they thought they were the real messiah. So Jesus says, be careful, because the mouthpiece, not from the liberal media, the mouthpiece of the church will tell people, you can have the promises and blessings of God without the authority of God. Jesus says, watch out when that starts happening. I love that in times theology has always been real times theology. In the fifth century, there was a bishop in either uh, Spain or Italy, history is not really sure, named Epiphanius, who spoke on end times theology and the importance of knowing the real time theology of end times theology. This guy, by the way, would not have known where Russia was. This guy would not have known where Libya was. This guy would not have known where the Sudan was. This guy would not have had any local news or international news. All this guy would have had was the Bible to warn Christians that he was preaching to 1,500 years ago how to make sure they were following Jesus. And look what he says. I'm going to read it from the screen. 1,500 years ago, a priest teaching Christians how to make sure they were ready for the end times. False Christs. The word Christ is a Greek word that means um, savior. So really this could read false salvations. False promises of salvations are the false truths of heresies. And false prophets are the preachers of those false truths. Their signs consist in doing the same things falsely, which the faithful do truthfully. They remain chaste, they observe the fast, they practice mercy, they fulfill every rule of the church. Do not the devil's signs appear most deceptive when you see him doing the works of God? 
1,500 years ago, a bishop said, watch out for people who want to do all the church stuff, but do not want to let God be their spiritual authority. Like, beware of people who go to church because it feels good to go to church. Beware of people who show up and sing songs about God because it feels good to sing songs about God. Beware of people who will serve in the community because it makes you look good, and really it does make you feel better. Beware of people who go on global mission trips because you want to help people and travel's fun. Beware of people who do all the church stuff, but do not let Jesus be in charge of their life. But do not let Jesus have spiritual authority in their life because those are all pictures of false salvations given by false prophets, false teachers, preachers, promising you the blessings and the promises of God without the authority of God. Beware when that happens. Those are counterfeit messiahs. That's what you need to know. What do you need to do? Like I said, probably the most application in the message is in these next four points. What do I need to do? Letter A, you need to know the real Messiah personally and intimately. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. Jesus said, counterfeit messiahs will try to deceive the elect if that were possible. Real Christians know the voice of Jesus and they know when a liar's whispering in their ear. So I work to know Jesus so well that I, that I know when a voice is not his. Letter B, I work to know the scriptures because those make you wise for salvation. Say, how can I know Jesus well enough to know what comes from him and what doesn't come from him? Learn the scriptures. Those will make you wise for salvation. Letter C, make Jesus known among the powerful in your life. Jesus said, if they try to get you to practice your faith in the wilderness, if they try to say, come out here away from life where like nothing important is, like do the Christianity thing, but on your own. Don't let anybody know about it. Don't do that. He said in Luke 12, when you stand before powerful people, you tell them who I am. I'm willing to tell people that I love Jesus and who he is to me. And then letter D, make Jesus known publicly in your life. Matthew 5, 16 says, let your light shine. Uh, Jesus says, don't hide your light under a bushel or a shade. He said, when they tell you, practice your faith in the inner room. That's a private thing. Don't bring your faith into public life. So I can't do that because I'm a follower of Jesus and this is not just an inner room thing for me. This is who I am. This is my life. I love Jesus. How well do you know Jesus and his word? I met with a couple small group leaders um, a couple weeks ago who had a very legitimate question about leading their small group. They'd been leading their small group the past couple years with books written by authors who appear to maybe be changing some of their doctrine and theology. And they're like, how do we be careful not to give someone like a really good book um, of an author that may later change their mind. And I said, well, I got two good answers for you. Um, the first one is only give people dead guys um, because like dead guys like can't change their mind. So like read C.S. Lewis and like um, dead guys are trustworthy. They're not gonna write another book. So um, use the dead ones. So that's like that one's free. That's easy. Use the dead ones. Um, secondly, you are not ever gonna be able to control how someone lives or what someone teaches. Please realize that as sincere as they happen to be, Christian publishers exist to make money. And if someone writes a good book or a good blog or they get a good thing, they're going to write it, probably without fact-checking their theology to the, like, the smallest minute detail. And some people are going to change their mind, then they're just going to pull books off the shelf. So here's what you have to prepare people for. Don't teach them which authors are good and which authors are bad. Teach them the Bible, and the Holy Spirit will tell them. Teach them the Bible. 
Instead of saying these 10 authors are good and these 10 authors are bad, say, this is the author of life. Learn this so well that when you read something that contradicts it, you'll know it without even having to ask a question. Uh, the, the elementary school I grew up um, going to every year, sixth grade, took the sixth grade class to Washington, D.C. That was kind of the, as you got out of elementary school, the big trip that you got to take um, and got to see all the sites of D.C., probably far more access when I was going in the early 90s than post 9-11. But one of the stops was to the kind of the, the Secret Service building to learn how the Secret Service did what they did. And one of the most fascinating parts of the Secret Service tour, if you've ever taken it, um, is seeing the counterfeit money portion of that tour. Somebody who had been a few years before us was talking to us about what they learned about counterfeit money because when you go into the Secret Service building, they've got lines of counterfeit money and some of the biggest counterfeit bust and you get to touch it and hold it and try to find out what's wrong with it. And somebody asked one of the Secret Service agents giving the tour, like, how many different types of counterfeit money do you have to study to know how to spot a counterfeit? And he said, we actually never study counterfeit money. We only study the real thing, and we know it so well that the minute something is different is very, very obvious. We never study counterfeit money. We know the real thing so well that the minute something is off, we know it's a counterfeit. Can you say that about your faith? Because of your knowledge of Jesus and your pursuit of the scriptures, can you say, I always know when something's off? because I've studied the real thing. My challenge to you is to approach your relationship with Jesus in your Bible reading with the tenacity of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a governor who had been dispersed in the Babylonian exile that we talked about a little earlier, uh, a cupbearer to the king who was given the assignment to come back and build the walls of Jerusalem. And he was invited, just like the counterfeit messiahs of Matthew 24, come out in the wilderness, come off the wall, come into the inner rooms, come off the wall. They kept trying to get Nehemiah off the task that God had given him to do. And when they said, hey, leave the city, let's meet out in the wilderness, Nehemiah said, I'm not coming off the wall. This is a task God has given me to do. And when they said, meet us inside the temple, in the inner rooms in Nehemiah 6, Nehemiah said, I'm not coming off the wall. This is a task that God has given me to do. In all of the deception and distraction of the world, listen to me if you're a follower of Jesus. Do not get off the wall of leaning into Jesus and learning the word of God. Amen? Like, you want to be ready for the end? Lean into Jesus, learn the word of God. Lean into Jesus, learn the word of God. Lean into Jesus, learn the word of God. Then when you find yourself in a public situation, you'll be ready. Then when your faith is questioned, you'll be ready. Lean into Jesus, learn the word of God. And then sign number six. I'm glad that sign three, sign six are both positive. Is that there's going to be a clear return. It really kind of redeems all the teaching we've learned the last two weeks. There's going to be a clear return. Jesus said, for his lightning that comes from the east is visible. Even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Where there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Two mostly encouraging things that we need to know. One, the return and reign of Jesus is going to be known by all. Not just known by all. Philippians chapter 2 says it will be acknowledged by all. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus, Yeshua, really was God's savior of the world for the Jewish people and for Gentile Christians. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. In addition to that, what else do we need to know? The wicked are going to be judged. Thank God, Revelation 20, 13, and 14. I talked to a mom on the way in today whose college son watches online. 
And she said, her son gave me a message today. Man, keep preaching end times because the world is falling apart. The world needs it. Isn't it good to know that that will be over one day? All the wicked, all the wrong, all the bad. Eventually, that's going to go away. How I long for that day. But really, I'm only comfortable with those two pieces of information. Those things are only good news if I'm doing what I need to do, not just knowing what I need to know. So what do I need to do because Jesus' return is clear? Two things. One, I need to press on to know and love Jesus. The prophet Hosea says, press on to know the Lord. His coming is as sure as the sun. Hosea basically said this. Every time I see a sunrise, I remind myself Jesus is coming back and it's important to get close to him. Is that how you see every sunrise? Every time I see a sunrise, I remember, hey, one day Jesus is going to come back. It's important to press into him today. 2 Timothy 4, 8, the apostle Paul told his young apprentice, Timothy, man, my time's almost up. I've run my race, man. I've fought my fight but I'm ready to meet God and I know he's going to reward me because every day I've longed for his appearing. I just want to be with him. I've lived my life leaning into who he is. But more than that, what do I need to do if I believe that Jesus is coming back? I need to live to tell the world that he's coming back. We read a really interesting verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that gives us a different answer to the question, how do you know someone is like addicted to prophecy and end times? then maybe you would give. Say, so how do you know that someone is fascinated with? How do you know that someone has been captured by? How do you know that someone is enamored with the end times teaching? Well, it's easy. Every day they live for Jesus and they tell people about Jesus. Second Corinthians 5.11 will end on this verse, not in Matthew 24, but Paul says, here's how you know whether somebody's all about the end times. Here's what they'll do. 2 Corinthians 5, 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. If you have people in your life who call themselves prophecy experts who love reading about the end times, thinking about the end times, learning about the end times, talking about the end times, but they are not every day pushing after Jesus and every day trying to tell someone else about Jesus, they might be fascinated with a topic, but not a person and not a reality. Because Paul says, when you really know what's coming, you yourself press into Jesus and like your whole life is built persuading others that like Jesus is coming, so you should get ready. I don't know if you made a note, but the to-do list of everything we learned about the signs today, they're kind of the same. What do I do once I know about the signs of the end? I press in to love Jesus. I spend time getting to know Jesus. I make sure Jesus is the most important treasure in my life. Like the end times don't make me think about a date in the future. They, think, they make me think about a person today, Jesus, and they make me want to press into him. Knowing prophecy doesn't make me arrogant. Knowing prophecy doesn't make me afraid. What does knowing prophecy do for me? Knowing prophecy makes me dependent on Jesus. Knowing prophecy makes me diligent every day to lean into Jesus. Knowing prophecy makes me determined to know the word of God because I know deceit is coming. Knowing prophecy makes me disciplined to love God, to know God, to follow God, to look forward to God's coming. So my question for you, six signs of the end, you know them. What are you going to do about that truth that you've learned? Talked to a friend after church today um, who said, uh, Pastor Christian, 
have I ever told you why I'm so passionate about prophecy? I said, I don't think we've ever had that conversation. We often, when we connect, we talk about prophecy, but he's never told me the backstory. Have I ever, have I ever told you why I'm so passionate about prophecy? I said, I, have, I don't know that I've ever heard that. What's the story? And he said, when I was on the army, I was flying back to base from one of my leaves. And he said, I was sitting on the plane next to a man who introduced himself to me, whose name was Hal Lindsey. For those of you who grew up in the church world, he was one of the first prophecy guys to put simple, clear prophecy into a timeline, into a book that you could really study. And he said, I wasn't a Christian at the time, but Hal gave me his book to let me know that it would get me ready for the end. And he said, I threw it on a shelf, never looked at it. But when I became a Christian, I went back and read it. He said, but here's what I took from that experience. How Lindsay was not as obsessed with the end as he was with me. Because he believed what he had written, he wanted the guy on the airplane next to him to know Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? Prophecy expert? Prophecy geek? Love it? It's great. As long as it causes you to run towards Jesus and tell the world about him, go after it. If you're just learning to be prideful, you're just learning because you're afraid, maybe back up a little bit, read Matthew 24, and then lean into Jesus again. What's God said to you today? How do you need to respond? As always, our service closes with some meditations for you to just kind of reflect a question to trigger an answer that hopefully will turn into a prayer. So Daniel, just kind of keep playing softly. I'm going to pray, then I'll back up and let you take three minutes to kind of process these questions, and then I'll close this in prayer. So God, thank you for what you've taught us today. Thank you that the end is not a secret and it's not a surprise. You've told us it's coming. You've told us how to get ready for it. You've told us the fact that it is coming should make us run towards Jesus and tell the whole world about him. Help us to do that. As we reflect now on our own stories, on our own position spiritually, Lord, speak to our hearts as we answer these questions. Turn them into prayers. Turn them into commitments. Turn them into movement. It's our prayer and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.